Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. Syria's bloody stalemate entered its eighth year on March 15th. Hundreds of thousands have died and millions have been displaced. Solutions have evaded the international community. And as Syria descends deeper into despair, a dangerous proxy war is threatening to pull even more actors in. For the United States in particular, Syria represents a unique failure of vision in global leadership. Half-hearted commitments and red lines rendered meaningless by inaction have eroded America's ability to enforce any lasting truce. And in the vacuum created by Donald Trump's isolationist foreign policy, Syria is spiraling even further out of control. My guest today spent much of his career bringing American diplomacy to some of the world's most intractable crises, from the Balkans to North Korea to Iraq. Today, Ambassador Christopher Hill is a professor at the University of Denver and chief advisor to the Chancellor for Global Engagement. We'll talk to him about what the U.S. and the international community should be doing in the Middle East. Hello. Hi, Ambassador. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. My pleasure. So lots to talk about, um, but I'd like to start with Syria, if that's okay, and the imbroglio that the international community finds there. The list of state actors in that conflict is very long and includes Russia, the United States, Turkey, Iran, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and of course Syria, among others. And each of these countries is aligned with non-state actors, and then there are rebel groups and Islamists and mercenaries and ordinary citizens it's quite the alphabet soup uh, of actors. Just briefly, how did we get here? And who are all of these different competing interests? And, and what do they want? Well, first of all, you're absolutely correct that this is a, a dizzying uh, number of actors. And uh, actors who have played kind of different roles uh, through this whole crisis. So uh, the complexity of this issue seems to uh, uh, sometimes exceed people's patience in trying to understand it. But I think it is well worth uh, going through. And I think it's well worth uh, kind of reflecting on what U.S. interests are. You know, back in uh, 2011, the U.S. first became involved in this by asserting the rights of these uh, opposition groups to um, come together for free assembly and to uh, have their freedom of speech. Well, needless to say, this was not something uh, the Syrian leader Bashir al-Assad uh, agreed with. And uh, he immediately uh, began a sort of process of sort of brutalizing this uh, situation with the consequence that we have a full-blown civil war on our hands. But what we also have are not only you know, our own interests in seeing uh, freedom of speech and, uh, and freedom of assembly, uh, but we've seen uh, other countries asserting their own national interests, including Iran, uh, Turkey, and uh, Israel, in fact, and, and also now uh, Russia. So uh, the situation seemed to be clarifying uh, about a year ago as Russia began to really intervene heavily to help the uh, regime as the ISIS issue, ISIS being the sort of second and parallel but related uh, uh, war going on. And so it seemed that ISIS was on the way out. And uh, Assad was busy consolidating power with the helps of uh, with the help of Russia and Iran and uh, uh, southern Lebanese uh, uh, group of Hezbollah. 
But now we're seeing that the situation has once again um, metastasized into a broader conflict, with Turkey being especially concerned about the Kurds up in the northern part of Syria along the Turkish uh, border, with the, uh, the issue of ISIS not being quite finished and ISIS actually sort of melting into some of these, uh, these uh, other groups in Syria. And so uh, I think we have a situation whose complexity is going to require a U.S. role and, a, and uh, as importantly, a U.S. understanding of this. And yet we have a Trump administration that uh, uh, really has not been interested in being involved in this. And because of that vacuum, we're seeing a continued effort by other countries. Yeah. I mean, so let's zero in on the Trump administration approach. And, and ironically, it's not that different than what the Obama administration was trying to do in terms of looking at the, the situation in Syria through the lens of terrorism and essentially looking to use reliable proxies to fight ISIS. Now, with that mission somewhat in question, as Turkey starts to target uh, Kurdish-held positions in northern Syria and, in fact, targeting U.S. allies in the north, does the U.S. have a replacement policy, so to speak, if the Kurds are no longer the reliable allies and proxies that they have long been? I think the U.S. went into this with a view that on the one hand, you have a hideous authoritarian government under Bashar al-Assad, and on the other hand, you, pe you have people who want a more democratic uh, outcome. And that was the, that were, were groups involved in the, uh, in the Free Syrian Army, except that the Free Syrian Army has turned out to be about 10 Free Syrian armies. And uh, only some of them have been kind of effective in, uh, in, in the fight. And uh, the ones who have been most effective in the other war, that is the war against uh, ISIS, have, of course, been the Kurds. But in being effective with ISIS, they've also had a kind of, uh, in effect, uh, ceasefire with government forces and with Syrian uh, government, meaning that the Syrian government has said to uh, the, uh, the Kurds that they could have their own autonomy. And the word autonomy in that part of the world is often conflated with essentially independence. And so that's where the Turks just parted company uh, with this. So in the meantime, while the U.S. has always opposed this brutal um, uh, dictatorship of Assad, uh, it has been difficult to embrace many of these opposition groups who are themselves aligned with some of the most virulent forms of Sunni Arab radicalism coming out of the uh, Arab Peninsula uh, and various Wahhabis, Wahhabists. So I think um, we have wanted to be in total opposition to Assad, but we found that the people to be, uh, to be allied with don't necessarily share our values either. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of criticism about the United States in its early alignment with the Kurds, not entirely understanding or appreciating uh, what that would mean to Turkish relations and how vehemently opposed the Turks were to an autonomous yeah. Kurdish region. I think the problem has been the U.S. has understood that to support aspirations for Kurdish independence would run us afoul of our of our NATO ally, Turkey. 
But at the same time, that NATO ally Turkey has not always been easy to deal with in recent years. And the increasing cooperation we've seen between Turkey and Russia, including even the purchase by Turkey of Russian uh, military equipment, has been very problematic within NATO generally and specifically with the U.S.-Turkish uh, 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 relationship. The U.S. has tried to make it clear to everybody, including the Kurds, that we stop short of, uh, of supporting Kurdish uh, independence. But the Kurds have often sort of looked at our uh, uh, support of them, uh, the virtual alliance we've had with them in the fight against ISIS. And sometimes they don't listen so much to the words as they listen to the music. And for them, the music has been that we kind of secretly uh, want to see Kurdish independence. And so uh, it has been difficult to tell them we don't want that at the same time to maintain this close relationship that we have with the Kurds. Mm. You know, interestingly, in one of your recent commentaries for Project Syndicate, you suggested that what the U.S. kind of needs to do now is ensure the survival of its various allies on the ground. But if some of those allies are being attacked by a NATO military, how does, how do, how does the U.S. do that? I mean, is that essentially taking on Turkey? <laughs> Well, you've got it because it's very, it's extremely complex. And no, I don't think there's any stomach for uh, taking on Turkey. But I think there does need to be a much stronger effort diplomatically to try to harmonize our positions and make sure we're not in open conflict. And here is where I think the Trump administration, in trying to stay out of these uh, uh, quagmires as they would see them, have not quite understood that sometimes the best way to stay out of a quagmire is to be very engaged diplomatically. And uh, we essentially have a uh, government in Washington that's trying to engage in diplomacy without diplomats. And so I think uh, that is part of the problem, just the capacity of the uh, Tillerson-led State Department to be actively engaged on these issues. Before we jump into the Trump administration's Middle East policy, I want to dive into something a little, even a little further back and pose the question as to whether or not Syria is actually a symptom of a much bigger and broader disease, and, and that disease being the chain reaction of events that was caused after the U.S. invasion in Iraq. Our ability, the United States' ability to deal with the situation in Syria has in many ways been tied to failings in what happened in the Iraq invasion. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think uh, there's definitely an element of that. You know, for all the Americans, uh, and there are not very many of them, who think that the intervention in Iraq was a great idea or the intervention in Libya was a great idea, there are many more Americans who question those interventions and question whether we've left the situation better off than when we found it. So I think there's a reluctance in the United States generally um, perhaps not so much within Washington among think tanks, but the rest of the country is very skeptical of these things. They don't understand these issues, and they're not sure that the countries involved really share our values. So when the uh, Arab Spring came along, uh, there was a perception that somehow we, we welcomed the, these developments. And uh, you recall the U.S. was a little slow to pull the uh, rug out from under uh, Hosni Mubarak. And so the view was somehow in Washington, well, we need to show that we're, we understand this sort of these winds of change 
that have come about. And so I think the U.S. kind of moved perhaps a little too quick to try to pull the rug out from uh, Assad and hope that Assad would fall uh, the way some of these other leaders in North Africa, namely Gaddafi, had fallen. Well, uh, you know, the complexity of Syria going back uh, you know, depending on when you want to pick up the story, but it's fair to say it's a couple of thousand years. Uh, the complexity of that, I think, had us misjudge uh, Assad's stability. And in trying to kind of move against him, he didn't leave. And so uh, I think the, um, the U.S. has been frustrated by it. Uh, there are many people now who believe we don't understand it. And there are others who say, look, let's just uh, work on ISIS. They're the ones with a global threat. And let's leave the uh, issues of uh, governance in Damascus uh, to the local people involved. So it was in some ways getting the, the goal or the objective ahead of the strategy in supporting the removal of Assad, but not necessarily with either the military, or the diplomatic uh, and political strategy to get that done. Or dare I say, it's a foreign policy that grows out of American politics, where uh, left-wing Democrats, very concerned about our capacity to spread human rights and democracy to the rest of the world, may have uh, kind of overplayed our hand there. At the same time, uh, uh, many Americans who uh, feel that we are uh, somehow uh, not a good uh, influence on the rest of the world, uh, said that we should stay out. So on the one hand, you had uh, this kind of uh, this notion of America as a uh, as a country that needs to bring democracy to the world coming in conflict with uh, not one, but two other groups. One, the group I mentioned that is of isolationists who feel we're too good for the world and should stay away from these kinds of things. But there's also a view expressed by Bernie Sanders and others in the U.S. that in effect we're uh, uh, we're too bad for the world that every time we get involved in these things, we leave them worse off than, than when we started. And so I think the overall consequence is uh, a United States that to some extent has retrenched from some of these global issues. Right. Yeah. You know, I've, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, I can put myself in the Trump administration's shoes and say, well, the U.S. hasn't done nation building very well, so we're not going to do it anymore. And we're going to go back to the old kind of non-committal Middle East policy where we focus less on stability and more on either targeting terrorists or keeping the oil flowing. Yeah. Well, I think we've, um, in the past, we've tended to focus almost entirely on stability, on propping up dictators, probably not our friends. So I understand the movement away from that. But I think, uh, as is often the case, there seems to be there seem to be no speed bumps, and so before you know it, we're just looking at oil supplies, as you suggest, and then uh, we've also had this other impulse, as I mentioned, to try to just support democracy, and the absence of democracy in the, some of these countries, as I've written in Project Syndicate, it's complex. I mean, do not assume that these countries uh, that you just uh, give them an idea or two and they're off to the races with a democratic constitution. It's going to take uh, a while. And so the complexity of these things, the long term uh, causes and the long term uh, uh, remediation of these issues is something that Americans have not had the patience for. And I think it's a big problem as we face an extremely, extraordinarily complex situation in Syria. 
does I mean clearly I think the answer to to my rhetorical question is does Trump have the stomach for it? It's no. But does he have a Middle East strategy at this point in your opinion? Well, I, none that I've been able to see. I mean, to some extent, it's as you described a, an effort to say let's keep the oil flows going. But um, I I think the problem is within the Trump administration there's not enough foreign policy leadership. And so the consequence, and this happens often in American uh, administrations, in the absence of clear, concise leadership, you can have uh, several foreign policies sort of uh, merrily existing side by side. You have people who think we ought to be in there with covert arms programs and others who say we should not do that. And both think they're reflecting the president's view. So I think we've got a, we've got a problem in terms of articulating what it is we want there. And uh, I think Secretary Tillerson has tried to address this, but I think his own problems with the president have made him a sort of um, uh, the, the people are skeptical that whether, whether he can really speak for the administration. So, um, you know, there's no question we have a problem. I think we're prepared to uh, go after ISIS and, go, and going after ISIS is what we've done with great uh, success. There's also a view that we are prepared, um, and I think President Trump demonstrated this, we're prepared to go after Assad when he uses uh, so-called banned weapons, that is chemical weapons. But beyond that, we don't seem to have an, any overarching view of, of this situation. And as we talked earlier, I think Syria is not just a problem of Syria, it's a complexity of the whole region, especially when the, within the Sunni Arab community and the relationship of that split community to Iran and Iran's interest in projecting its power into the Arab lands. Yeah, I think that this leads nicely into the next thought or next question that I have. You know, the days of this kind of limited or hands-off approach when the results of, of being disengaged from the region didn't really have a wide or meaningful impact, those days are long gone. And it's not just from a humanitarian perspective really anymore. The fact that our regional allies are, are stronger and more emboldened uh, is clear in the adventurism that Saudis and Emiratis and Turks and Israelis, there's, it's not just the complexity in Syria, but it's the complexity in the region and the ability for these sovereign states to move independently seems to be uh, exponentially intensifying. Yes. Uh, and uh, to understand these states and how they're reacting to change and their own perception of, you know, they're not really sure where the U.S. is. So uh, they're not really sure in making decisions, will this help them with the U.S. or hurt them with the U.S.? So uh, there is a bit of a drift here. And I think uh, the irony is many people in the region, uh, they don't like what the U.S. has to say or has had to say over the years, but they seem to want us to say more. It's uh, uh, akin to the old uh, Woody Allen joke that somehow about a restaurant that the to the effect the food is terrible and besides the portions are too small. Uh, I think there is this kind of view. They don't like what we're saying, but they think we're not saying enough of it. And, and, and this, is a, this is a challenge for American foreign policy makers. I think it was understandable that President Obama said enough of this Iraq situation, enough of the Afghan situation. We need to focus on other parts of the world. 
but uh, these situations have to some extent metastasized to a broader problem in the Middle East, whose solution I don't think will be possible without much more engaged U.S. leadership. I mean, there's certainly a desire for U.S. leadership, but what about Arab leadership? Where are the Arabs in all of this, in Syria in particular? Well, good question, because uh, clearly we have a uh, a Saudi Arabia who felt very much uh, estranged from the U.S., because after all, the U.S. went in and took a Sunni-led country, Sunni-led country in Iraq, albeit with a Shia majority, and flipped it to being a Shia-led country. And for the Saudis, who have their own problems with their own Shia, and who worry a great deal about Iranian influence, uh, in, in other words, Shia influence, worried that somehow the U.S. unwittingly and rather dumbly had stepped in and created a whole new um, uh, geopolitical situation for the Saudis, where they look to their northern frontier and they see a lot of Shia there. So clearly a lot of concerns. In comes President Trump, and before you know it, he is essentially bought into everything the Saudis have suggested, even buying into the Saudi feud with uh, with uh, the Qatari, uh, with Doha. So um, uh, unclear why the president has done this, but it seems to be related to a view that somehow if we say yes enough to the Saudis, it will help us in finding the elusive uh, peace in uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So these are to go from Obama to uh, or from Bush to Obama to Trump. Those are a lot of of clutchless shifts and gears. And uh, I think the people in the region have a right to sort of wonder what's going on back there in Washington. So I want to bring this back uh, in conclusion to your vast experience in the region. And of all that we've talked about, I'm not hearing too many uh, ways forward, but there have to be. And and as diplomats and as um, uh, creative thinkers, uh, people are looking for solutions and will always want to discuss them. So assuming, assuming, well, I'm making an assumption here, but assuming that the U.S. can play a role in bringing any sort of meaningful truce to Syria, are there lessons from your past experience that could be applied? Well, there sure are. First of all, uh, in working on the Balkan solution, which was also a crisis of statehood, uh, crisis of the nation states, in the case of the Balkans, a formation of nation state out of out of the ashes of uh, of uh, what was the uh, uh, Federation of Yugoslavia. Um, the, the international community got together and worked up something called a contact group plan, which was a, a sort of uh, uh, effort to define what we felt ought to happen in the future. And then we sold it to the parties. And so you ended up with a situation that most people bought onto it and others rejected it. And so the rejectionists were the ones that you, you considered the people that you uh, have to convince uh, either by uh, persuasion or by military force. And so it the situation kind of clarified itself. And then we went to a, uh, a conference in, in Dayton, Ohio, with all the parties concerned. And we figured out what the map would look like and what the system of governance would look like. Um, I think we need to employ some of those efforts at uh, cooperation among outside powers and see what can be done in Syria. Uh, There has been very little success in the U.S. and Russia figuring out a common way forward. 
Uh, we've also talked, I think, excessively about the need for elections in Syria. And, um, you know, in Bosnia, we left off the elections until much later because elections without institutions are just a census. Uh, if you have elections without any institutions, you'll find out how many Kurds there are and how many Sunni Arabs there are, but you won't find out, um, you know, what kind of politics there can be for the future. So I think there, the lessons are there to be learned. Uh, the trouble is, um, you know, uh, in this fast-paced uh, uh, world we live in, people often don't spend the time to figure out where we've been before and what lessons we can bring forward. And I think we need to do a lot more of that. I think there needs to be a lot of effort uh, with the European powers, with the Russians, with even the Chinese on these issues, although we've got our hands full with China and dealing with the North Korean question as well. Well, and the North Korean question was what I wanted to ask you about. Just simply getting people to the table at this point would be a victory in the Syria case. And you had some success getting North Koreans to the table around the six-party talks. Are there parallel lessons for the Syrian crisis uh, using the North Korean model? I think uh, there might be. But I, I want to stress that just getting people to the table uh, might become an opportunity for a food fight and not for a uh, an effort at kind of descending the ladder of abstraction and figuring out how we can come to common positions on things. So I think before you go to the table, there should be a clear understanding of what it is you're going to the table about, what it is you already agree on, and what are the elements that you don't agree on and require that kind of dialogue across the table. So we had an agreement with uh, the North Koreans. They agreed to give up all their nuclear weapons and return to the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, but in, back in 2009, they, they disassociated themselves from that prior agreement. So we have to see in the coming weeks and months whether they can be brought back to the idea that we have a, uh, a concept which was created by multilateral diplomacy known as the uh, uh, September 2005 joint statement and see if we can get a coalescence around that where the other country, where North Korea agrees to give up its nuclear weapons and the rest of us agree to live peacefully together with North Korea, to open up trade, to recognize that, that state and to otherwise uh, create a lasting peace and stability. And frankly, that's going to take some time. Well, I think that's a sobering place to leave it and just a reminder that in the Syrian case, uh, there may not be a table big enough to deal with the negotiations. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Ambassador. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and a great honor to uh, be able to write for Project Syndicate. That was Christopher Hill, a professor of the Practice in Diplomacy at the University of Denver and chief advisor to the Chancellor for Global Engagement. He is also a longtime PS contributor, and you can read all of his columns on our website at www.project-syndicate.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.